0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to DDK Pod, the podcast where three guys who founded an IT company talk IT industry news and topics that interest us. My name's Julian Day, and with me, as always, are my two co-hosts, Jatinda Kandola and Will Dalton. How are you guys?
1: Good, thank you. Hope everyone's well. Very good, thanks.
0: Good, good. Right, so straight into the news then for this week. Got some quite big news going on, so I'm going to go first, if you don't mind. Donald Trump's been banned from Twitter, (laughs) which is... uh, Well, it's a thing, isn't it? It's the main way that he engages with his user base, or user base is probably the wrong word, with his electoral base. And yeah, he's been kicked off, which is remarkable in many ways, but also not entirely unexpected. So it's fascinating to think about the reasons why this might have happened now. So for years, Trump has obviously been flouting Twitter's policies, Twitter being a company that are out there to make money after all. I'm not sure whether they do yet, but I'm sure at some point they will. (laughs) And uh, I genuinely don't know, actually. I should have checked that. But he has done stuff on Twitter that's fair to say mere mortals like the rest of us would never get away with, I think, you know, (laughs) presenting his alternative facts here, there and everywhere, and particularly in the, the twilight hours of his presidency, claiming that the election wasn't legitimate and that kind of stuff. Anybody else would have been banned, but because at the time, you know, he had the power to go after Twitter... He, uh, who's typing
2: (laughs) stop it. It. I'm saying I I Googled does Twitter make money?
0: (laughs) Oh, very good. Very good. No, that does kind of make sense. I suppose (laughs) you just need a, need a silent podcasting keyboard.
2: I need a a silent keyboard.
0: (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. Anyway. So yes. Trump is, he's off. He's been kicked off. But the thing that's interesting is whether or not it's actually a bit cynical on Twitter's part. So, for all those years, he got away with doing it and spreading varying degrees of misinformation on there and breaking their terms of service repeatedly. But when he's the president, they don't want to ban him. As soon as he's uh, going, and it looks like Joe Biden's going to come in, who has been quite famously talking openly about introducing additional legislation against social media platforms and and that kind of stuff to, to regulate them more heavily all of a sudden as soon as Trump's been defanged he gets banned so on the one hand you can kind of see it from Twitter's point of view where as a company they want to try and safeguard their own interests whoever is in power and on the other hand there's some interesting implications around sort of censorship and all sorts of stuff in there but it seems to be almost part of a concentrated push now to keep Trump from engaging with his people in the future so very interesting as a story I thought that that this has happened now and I don't think the timing is coincidental by any means they're saying it's because of the storming of the Capitol building Mm. that was the thing that that took it too far but it's slightly coincidental is it not that it's happening at the time when Trump no longer has the power to go after them anymore so yeah Big story this week. Big yeah, story. It opens tech.
2: up a whole load of questions that, doesn't
0: it? It does, yeah.
2: Why they've got the power to oh well, it's obvious why they've got the power, or should they have the power to do that on a sort of in a democratic society. Love him or loathe him, and I know he spouts a lot of controversial nonsense. However is that a reason to stop his free speech
0: yeah and it's it's also interesting that they're now saying well he broke our terms of service you know so he's off he's not allowed to say things like that, that on twitter that but for he's years, been <laughs> hasn't he? yeah. he's been breaking he's <laughs> been breaking their terms of service since before he was elected i think the big <laughs> so,
1: the big kind of weighing factor in all of this is the way america reacted to the the storming of the capitol building and the way it was then portrayed in the media around the prospect of these people being terrorists in America uh, and using Mm. that word terrorism. I think that was enough weight around that kind of incident for everybody to start kind of coming back in line. For a long time, I think he's been kind of just given a lot of freedom. And it's probably helped Twitter in some ways as well, him being controversial on their platform. Yeah. Controversy sells.
0: Absolutely right, yeah. So big story. We did consider doing an episode on it, but I don't think any of us particularly wanted to discussed Donald Trump for half an hour, <laughs> so uh, we'll leave that there, shall we? Jatinder, did you want to go ahead with your news story?
1: Yeah, happy to do that. So uh, my story is about Intel and their business and how they are struggling because some of their competitors are starting to build their own chips in-house, design and build. They've always been one of the kind of leading organizations and almost the world's biggest chip maker, if we look from a revenue perspective. However, they're now starting to be hit by some competition from some of their competitors in the Asian markets, particularly Samsung and TSMC. I'm not sure who they are. You guys know? No,
0: I not sure. Okay, cool.
1: But yeah, it's starting to... It depends how quietly you're going to do that. I can't be quiet. So because of this reason, and probably a few kind of changes were, were needed anyway... One of their investors, Daniel Loeb, is keen for them to take a step in spinning off the manufacturing arm altogether. And now that they have a new incoming boss in Bob Swan, who's going to replace Pat Gelsinger, it provides them an opportunity to to change. Uh, Pat Gelsinger is currently the person who runs VMware, which is a cloud computing uh, platform and he'll be starting the job in february so yeah just an interesting announcement from our industry really
2: yeah that is interesting another interesting one related to that is apple who've spun up some new chipsets based off the arm architecture their m1 chipset which are meant to be lightning fast interestingly for their new range of laptops again it's sort of another death knell in intel's market share Nice.
0: maybe yeah it depends though doesn't it because they're they're much more limited in their instruction set so it's all very well if all of your apps are within apple's wall garden and tailored precisely to that processor but they wouldn't necessarily be as fast for someone who was producing software that wasn't within apple's control i suppose so it's it's going to be interesting to see how developers react to that, particularly when they're doing cross-platform development across Android and Apple and stuff like that, for example. It's a bold move by Apple, I think, to go with their own architecture like that. Was that your news story, Will?
2: No, I thought about <laughs> doing that, but, I, but it's not. So my news story is an obituary. It's an obituary to, to Flash Player. Farewell to Adobe Flash. It's no longer been supported as of now. Uh, finally confined find the anals of history. It's been a long, slow and painful death but Flash does, or should I say did, have an important place in the history of the web, and it should be recognised for that. Its purpose is for really viewing rich media within the web, rich internet applications and streaming audio and video, before the day of HTML5 came about and the funky JavaScript libraries that are around. But it was the de facto standard in the in a web browser from about 2010 onwards. Arrival of HTML really sounded the death knell, although Apple had a big part to play because they didn't support Flash in any of their iPhones or iPads so it was a it was a plugin for a browser back in the day anyone with any security mindset and i remember this hated the plugin as it was not only rich in media but it was rich in vulnerabilities but that's how you got your funky games and graphics and user interface within the web browser back in the old days um, head over to yeah. wiki head over to wiki for a history of the rise and fall of flash player a tear in my eye
0: yeah this is normally the point where i jump in and go our oh, thoughts and prayers are with the family a flash player or whatever but no in this case I'm, i started out <laughs> sure as a web not, developer around that kind of time and uh yeah it, i'm kind of glad to see the back of it it was more trouble than it was worth in many ways um <laughs> no, the switch to, from
1: like, uh, all that sympathy for will straight into <laughs> julian said i'm glad to see the back
0: of it well yeah i mean it's a, it's not a person it's a technology so yeah i mean learning <laughs> to write action scripts and stuff was a ball ache i mean it did do some quite clever stuff like the fact that you could send animations and you weren't actually sending a whole animation you were sending what they called the tweens like information about how one picture translated into another and then the browser would automatically perform the animation based on where you started and where you ended up and stuff that was really really clever stuff but it, it was never quite there as you say with it never quite sort of gelled properly and and it always was riddled with security vulnerabilities and everything else and it was quite tricky to provide an alternative to Flash content. So when HTML5 came along, I think a lot of people who've done web dev were quite pleased to see it. So yeah, good. So that is the news for this week. So we'll move on to this week's main topic, which I'm going to start with today. So this is the measurable benefits of technology and why I think it's important. So if I cast my mind back, probably five, six months, I can't remember exactly when it was, but but a few, uh, few months ago anyway, I was sitting with my wife, Emma, and watching uh, an episode of Ambulance, which is a, a series that's now been remade around the world, I think. I think it might have started in the UK. Um, I know there's definitely an Australian version and a few others, which I've watched a couple of episodes of, but my favourite one is the UK. UK version and it basically follows a ambulance service in a particular part of the UK so in this case it was a series on the London ambulance service series six
1: there's a Midlands version as well for anybody that likes the Midlands accent somebody is, I went to yeah. school with is one of the drivers in uh in in the show so yeah brilliant yeah, yeah Australia US Midlands <laughs> <laughs> to be more specific the Dudley region in West Midlands Dudley region, yeah. Excellent.
0: Yeah, they've dotted around all over the place. I think there was one in Manchester once. So it was, yeah, there's there's by like, not Liverpool and other cities have been covered. It's always a major metropolitan area. But this, the first season of Ambulance was the London Ambulance Service, and the sixth season is the London Ambulance Service again. And maybe it's because I know the city well, but I I find the London one's much more interesting. But but anyway. So the the story was that they were following what was going on on the New Year's Eve flick over to January 2017 from 2016, and they had one of the busiest nights, New Year's is always the busiest night of the year for the ambulance service, and the episode in question follows a massive computer outage that happens over that particular period. So between half 12 and 5.15 in the morning, control room staff had to fall back on a pen and paper system, basically, because the entire computer-aided dispatch system that they use to send ambulances where they needed across London just completely fell over in a heap. And just to give you some context for why that's pretty awe-inspiring, on a typical working 24-hour shift, London Ambulance Service normally expects to receive and handle around 5,000 calls. And in that window, midnight to 6am, they typically get around seven to 800 calls, which is a lot of calls, obviously, in a, in a short period of time. On a typical New Year's Day, they receive 2,500 calls in that window alone. So, you know, it's orders of magnitude more busy and that's when your system decides to conk out. And there was an interesting sort of little vignette that happened where there was a guy who was an advanced paramedic who's driving along in in a car on his own because he's one of the guys who gets sent in addition to the standard ambulance crews because he's got additional training. And he talked all about how, how these systems coming in has revolutionized the response times and the amount of lives that he feels he can save. Because there is a measurable benefit to that technology being introduced. Now, unfortunately, that episode is no longer available on the iPlayer. So I plan to go back and rewatch it and write down exactly what he said, but I wasn't able to do that. But What I did do is go and find the officially published reports into this particular outage. So the NHS did a full investigation on it and they provided these reports. And I'll get on to why this is really important in a minute. But basically, it was caused by some pretty standard techie stuff I won't go into. It's not all that interesting. But when it went down, obviously it was down for... About 90 minutes was the total duration of the outage, but then because they'd been on a paper system for a long time, it took a further four hours for them to reconcile all of that information that was then held on paper back into the computer system. And While they were doing all of that, um, they actually ended up having to enact a whole bunch of contingency procedures. And It's actually quite awe-inspiring to see the NHS staff switching to a fully paper-based system for the dispatch of ambulances, they've got sort of filofaxes full of medical conditions that they're flipping through because they can't just Google it, for want of a better word, on their system and find out what the correct treatment is. When someone rings up and the, the call handler has got to give them advice on what to do with that particular medical problem, they're, they're flipping through this huge filofax thing to try and find the medical condition. It's, it's just remarkable, really. And in that time, they switched over to asking other NHS trusts who dispatch ambulances to help them. So in total, 494 calls were triaged by other agencies, as well as the London Ambulance Service, because they just couldn't keep up with the demand. So when you think there's 2,500 calls coming in, so they, you know, they took on a good fifth or whatever it was of calls in, in other areas for them. But of course, they're all hampered because it's New Year's Eve. So they've all got ridiculous call volumes going on in their own areas as well. So it's about the worst time you could have an outage. And what I was trying to find was whether there was any tangible data as to whether or not this cost any lives or or, or had a massive impact. And to the NHS's immense credit to their, their processes and their training, the report concluded that there hadn't been massively tangible impact. There'd obviously been a lot of delays, but there hadn't been any that had cost lives. There was one in particular, though, that was investigated of one particular patient in the early hours of New Year's Day. They called up, their category. they were categorised as a red 2, which basically means that they're just below the top priority, and they were conscious and breathing, so that was why they were categorised that way. The call handler remained on the line with the caller to monitor their condition, and it massively deteriorated, so they then prioritised an ambulance to get there, but very, very sadly, uh, the patient didn't make it. They passed away before the ambulance was able to get there. And obviously, this is the bit where I'm going to say, if that was you or your family or anybody who was impacted by that, then our our thoughts and prayers are very much with you because that's a tragic thing to happen, especially at that time of year. So very, very sad for the family involved. But the report concluded that without the knowledge of the cause of death, it's very difficult to determine whether or not it was actually that system outage that was responsible for that person's death. But all of this information was passed to the coroner so that when they they made their uh, final reports and summations up, obviously that would be a potential contributing factor. Now, I thought it was a bit ghoulish to go and try and look for the coroner's reports or anything like that it's not really my place to do that but it's a fascinating story both the, the fact that the guy driving around in his ambulance said you now these systems have revolutionized the way that we go about our job they've, they've saved so many lives because we are able to so much better coordinate our resources and geolocate them to the right places and make sure that calls are picked up quickly it really struck me that that was not a story you hear often about London, not only London but but the NHS and its IT systems globally or nationally, excuse me. And it's it's fair to say that they've had a pretty rocky start with it because the you know the ambulance services uh, in London in particular have had at least two false starts where entire systems have been thrown out because they haven't worked properly or they've tried to roll systems out and they've fallen apart. But but in spite of all of that, once they got them working, this guy was absolutely adamant. That there was a measurable and tangible benefit in terms of the number of lives saved since he'd been working with this technology. So that made me think it was worth us talking about this because it leads to a wider point about why measurement in technology, why measurable benefits within technology, or in fact disbenefits, are so incredibly important to what we do within our industry and why it's worth sort of talking about the, the real value that measuring stuff, because it's a bit boring, can often bring. And another thing that that struck me as well was when reading through these reports and and looking at and considering all of it, um, the importance of understanding failure and why it's important to measure that as well. So it's it's not a very it's, it can be a bit of a taboo subject really because I, I know for for example when I've done projects and we've had a set of requirements we're expected to meet. If you some some of my clients have had the attitude, if you don't meet 100% of your requirements, then you failed as a project. You haven't done your job properly. But actually, sometimes the reason you don't meet a particular requirement is because it's either untenable or you've proved that you don't need to because you've measured the data properly and you understand now better than you did when you wrote the requirements what's actually required. Good examples of stuff like this are obviously big pharma, drug trials, things like that, where Uh, Very often, researchers are incentivized to publish successful trials and successful positive results. But actually, there's a guy called Ben Goldacre points out in a book that I definitely recommend called Bad Science. There's two books he's written on the subject. People who run trials which return negative results should be incentivized just as much. No, not weird science. That's a strange film about a lady in a shower, as I remember it. Oh, yeah. But also, you know, look at air crash investigations and the reason that the aviation industry is so incredibly safe. It's because they learn from everything that goes wrong every time. Uh, look at SpaceX, for example. They recently had their, their flashy new spaceship crash and explode uh, when they tried to do a landing trial on it. And they were over the moon that that had happened because it didn't happen with any people in the rocket. It happened while it was still in test. Well, he and doesn't like, well, this
2: call it, it a crash, does it? <laughs> he?
0: <doesn't laughs> well, he calls it let's an, not...
2: uncontrolled, an uncontrolled landing or something when it actually. An
0: uncontrolled explosive. It, it's some, landing it's some event. term
2: that he uses. And I think he uses that term <laughs> precisely because of the reasons you're you're stating or, yeah. or alluding to is that failure isn't failure. Failure is just a means to gain more insight in how to improve something. And, and once we stop, once we stop using those terms, you know, and, and the negative connotation that goes with it, we can, uh, we can all start building, designing, working better.
0: But it also, the, the current fad for agile methods in, in our industry in particular, so so being able to do this iterative development where you, you put out a release of something every now and again, the whole point of that approach is to incentivize you to measure and to learn from failures as much as successes so that the next iteration can be better. Mm. But what's tended to happen more recently is that if you don't have a successful release every single freaking time then you are falling apart as a project and it's all a big mess and a failure. Whereas in DDK, obviously, we love the the idea of hypothesis-led design. <laughs> yeah, we do, because we, we learn it every it. time. <laughs> yeah, we're very good at failing. Well, well, we're very good at failing in a controlled way quickly that doesn't derail our projects and destroy them. It's the whole fail fast thing, right? But it is a really important point. And, and if you don't measure stuff properly, if you're not equipping yourself with the right information as a result of these things then it's my contention that that's very, very bad in pretty much any industry, but particularly in ours. And I think obviously the opposite of failure is success. But I think very often success is seen as kind of a Boolean thing, to use a programming term, which means it's either on or off, or or a binary thing. So we either succeeded or we failed. So there's no gray area in there. And this is, again, where measurement is... I think to me, so important, you know, it's not, did you succeed? It's by how much did you succeed? You know, did you really meet your targets? Did you only meet some of them? What could you do better next time? And I thought it was worth exploring that a little bit further. And our our resident expert on all of this stuff in terms of measuring things is is Jatinda, because you, JK, work much more on the, on the business side where you're quantifying and measuring business benefits, disbenefits, all that kind of stuff. So do you want to take us through some of the sort of theory and your thoughts on this?
1: Ah, uh, yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. So, I think what's important is to to try and kind of just clarify what we mean by business benefit. A business benefit, as I see it, is a tangible outcome of some kind of activity or an action that helps meet a objective for a business. And we would use that same definition for also trying to define disbenefits as well, as equally as we would uh, with benefits. And there's Probably two very distinct categories of benefits, ones that have financial outcomes attributed to them, typically referred to as financial benefits, and then ones that are non-financial benefits that are almost sometimes known as soft benefits. Uh, But the ones with uh, financial outcomes, they are easier to measure because they have mathematics behind them in terms of savings, uh, growth, cash, internal investment and profit. Whereas the other ones that are a little bit softer, they need to be measured by being tied to objectives and have criteria for measurement set against those objectives. But they would include things such as key performance indicators for specific goals. So business objectives such as customer satisfaction, employee engagement, risk reduction, safety, quality of service, company reputation, and environmental quality. So that just as a very kind of broad brush, those are the kind of objectives that you would measure against for softer benefits. And to understand the mechanism in which to measure those benefits, we need to set some principles up front. And those principles help us to explain how to identify measures and value and class those benefits. Um, So in order to do that, the first kind of step in that activity would be to put together some practical definitions from your organization's perspective on costs and benefit itself. So making a determination of either, and then also costs and expenses and how or whether they are interchangeable. And then also looking at from a non-financial benefits perspective, a categorization process for your financial objectives and being clear on your terms so that everybody in the business is working from the same language and then making sure that you have done some kind of alignment between your objectives and your benefits so that there is a measure for value and you've included key performance indicators to help measure those non-financial benefits in terms of the actual activities to put measures against them and which allow us to then legitimize what those benefits are uh, there's roughly seven steps for both financial and non-financial and also for disbenefits First of those steps would be to link that business objective or action to an activity. So something that you're doing, confirm that that outcome is due to that action or activity, then confirm that that outcome helps meet that objective. So all very baby steps, but all things that need to be kind of questions asked honestly to to try and ratify whether this is right or wrong. Measure the value of financial outcomes directly measure outcomes impact on non-financial KPIs, establish the full value of achieving those target objectives, because sometimes some activities aren't meeting objectives in full, and apportion that value of the objective to those outcomes as well. So that's how to go about in a very kind of broad brush way, the, the mechanism to legitimize any claims and allow you and the business to put weight on the value of each of those benefits and disbenefits. Hopefully that helps to try and kind of put some science behind it.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, for sure. And thank you very much, yeah. I think my main point really from all of this is that you can't understand where you are without understanding the impact of what you've done already. I think that's the most important message for me. And, And that was what really struck me kind of between the eyes with that ambulance case study was, it's very important to recognize, I think, when you've been successful and understand why, and, and the collection and the, the proper measuring of these kind of things, the proper science of, of looking at the data and applying that, applying that sort of scientific method is very, very important, and it goes kind of to the heart of what we do, I guess, in our day jobs, especially um, uh, myself and Will with designing systems, and also that you can't expect to iterate you know, use agile methods and things like that and and experiment, which is ultimately what iteration is all about, without properly measuring your progress so that you can see if your next step was actually a forward step or a backward step. I don't know how you guys feel about that as kind of drawing it together, given that we're a little yeah, bit always, tight on time. Always
2: in evolutionary design and in, in doing this iterative development, design and development. It's all about experimentation, isn't it? But it's, it's about getting the right metric as well. It's about understanding what it is you're measuring.
1: Up yeah, front and why before measuring it, and why you're doing that? And keeping it honest to your intent. So each organisation, each activity, or project will have some kind of overarching strategy, or some vision, or some final state that they need to get to. So measurements for benefits, which are based upon the activities that you're doing, keeps everybody honest in terms of this is adding value to that overall outcome. Yeah, it's I think life so,
2: though, isn't it? Because, you know, when does your when does your product cease? When does it end? I suppose it ends when it's not adding value, isn't it? When it's not adding benefit. So, you know, those measurements of 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 benefit or lack of needs to be throughout the life of that particular product. So you can withdraw it or upgrade it or change it at the appropriate time for your business
0: yeah i totally agree with that i think the final thing i'd chuck in just before we go into the the next section is that um i think we desperately need to move as an industry away from disincentivizing the proper measurement of failure i think it's very mm. important to to, to, to quantify if you failed why you failed learn from that failure so you don't do it again and then also and make that public knowledge no and make that public knowledge you know just the same as in drug trials when they should, publish, uh, they should publish they should publish unsuccessful trials just as much as successful ones and those should be equally incentivized Hmm. because it adds to the overall body of knowledge you know if you if someone else has done it wrong in the past and told told you oh i tried that and it didn't work then you won't waste time and money doing it again Hmm. so i think that's a that's a final easier
2: said than done isn't it i mean look at the cultural look at the way we operate now you know where you make the smallest mistake and you are leapt upon you know yep. you're, you're an outcast i mean it's got worse and worse and worse and yet yeah. here we are in an industry where we're saying you know be public about your failures be public about your mistakes <laughs> and then you look around the world you go really do i really want to do that yeah. i mean I, I we all understand the benefits of doing it but it's definitely yeah. easier said than done
0: well it is and also often very very often it's someone else talking about your mistakes you know it hits well, the media <laughs> yeah.
1: you know.
0: It needs to be baked that's, into that's the
1: culture that it's something that yeah. you look for. And that's how it's going to be acceptable, I think, and, and be a norm.
0: Yeah, I think that's what I'm, re- I'm calling out for. Anywho, uh, we, unfortunately, we're running very short on time for that particular section, so we'll move on to the recommendations section, if that's okay. Will, do you want to go first this week?
2: Not really. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I want to recommend cotoday.co.uk. It's a bit of a jingle there, this is an online interactive classroom to teach you how to code. So my son, who is seven, and I attended a classroom session in the uh, Just Gone Christmas holidays, and it uses pre-prepped interactive material as well as a live Zoom-based interactive classroom session. Python is the language. It's pitched to seven to 16-year-olds. Importantly, you can use it in both term time and... And in holidays, when the blighters are tearing, what little hair I have left out. And Python is important because it's good for teaching the basics, but it's also used in AI, science and maths. And comes with some great little modules that you can import. The one they used in the classroom was called Turtle. So the session introduced Little Archie to, you know, just standard stuff like objects and loops and variables and arrays. Teaching quality was pretty good. I like the guy. He was a typical Londoner. He took no shit from the kids, <laughs> but, but, but in a nice way. <laughs> That job 50... advert. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no wonder you liked him, Will. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Took no shit. He was, he was a nice guy. And he kept it going. Do you know what I mean? He kept the pace. £50 pounds for a four-hour session, two hours over two days, all the course material. Comes with its own online coding platform as well, which is good, so you don't have to download, download or install anything. Codetoday.co.uk.
0: Very good. Cool. Yeah, no, that sounds fantastic, actually. Yeah, really good. I'm not surprised they're using Python because it's, it's one of the more easy to get to grips with languages, isn't it? But yeah. it's very much awesome. flavor of the month as well. So, yeah, you know, it's... Um, flavor of yeah, the great- 10 years. Yeah, well, yes, I suppose month was a bit silly, wasn't it? Yeah, about the last 10 years, something like that. So my recommendation this week is Gusto. So Gusto are a recipe box company. Stop groaning. Um, they are actually pretty good in a <laughs> way. So not great for the environment. I'm going to start by saying that. But in some ways, also good because you don't end up wasting anything. So previously when I was cooking from scratch i would uh, i'd often end up chucking stuff away unfortunately if it went out of date or i'd end up trying to make a recipe where in order to get 100 grams of a certain ingredient i have to go and buy an 800 gram packet or something and then that other 700 grams would just sort of wither on the vine so they send you they're just like hello fresh or any of these companies but gusto are the one i use i think their recipe selection is better and i have taken to cooking a lot of their stuff my way on my barbecue because i do a lot of uh, barbecue cooking So I I often change their recipes up a bit, but they're pretty good, all told, and their customer service is very, very good. So um, I've had a few problems, as people sometimes do, with missing ingredients or ones that have been spoiled in transit or something like that. And they've been really good about responding to that. They've always given me credit on my account and uh, apologized. And they do seem to be changing some of their processes as a result of the feedback that people are giving them. So I would recommend them that it all comes Packaged up in a box that will sit outside your house with ice packs in it for quite some time. So if you're not in and they deliver, uh, not the end of the world. And it works out to, I think, under £5 a meal, because we order four meals a week, for two people, which isn't bad, given that it's all fresh ingredients. Plenty of vegetarian and vegan options, JK, uh, for you as well. Plenty of world cuisine stuff so uh indian recipes indonesian recipes chinese recipes as well as uh, stuff like that they've also got a deal going with joe wicks a few of his uh lean in 15 recipes are up there if anyone's interested in that post christmas where you're trying to shed your lockdown chunk or whatever but yeah gusto give them a go they're not too bad if anyone wants a uh, referral code let me know (laughs) that's (laughs) why you did (laughs) little plug in there at the end (laughs) Had to get there in the end. No, uh, seriously, uh, I I won't send that out. That's fine. To Tinder, do you want to uh, do your recommendation?
1: Uh, yeah, thank you. So my recommendation is uh, Wolverson Fitness Equipment it's for anybody that's interested in buying some gym equipment for your home gym, given our current circumstances and the lockdown. I bought quite a bit of Wolverson Fitness Equipment over the last few months, and I've been very impressed in terms of the build quality and the price as well. So, it's something that I recommend in terms of literally everything I've bought so far, which includes a gym rack, Olympic barbells, and bumper plates, and an EZ bar as well. All have been very high quality and reasonably priced as well. That's my I'm recommend. so
0: jealous that you've got room for all that stuff. <laughs> I had to <laughs> I would make a kill. Yeah. I, I would kill to be able to get that stuff in my house.
1: I've probably thrown away several thousand pounds worth of stuff to make room for other several thousand pounds worth of stuff. What's the music you listen to then, JK? When you do it, is
2: it I the Tiger?
1: Uh, to be fair, I don't really listen to music. I just think that I'm naturally so motivated to, to kind of work <laughs> on myself that I think that my thoughts in my head just kind of carry me through.
0: Back episodes of DDK Pod, surely. <laughs> If you're going to listen to anything, it should be us, right?
1: <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to help me <laughs> lift more weight. It might just make me feel like I'm a bit happier. Let's say might not be yeah. in the right kind of state of mind to to really pump iron. Maybe cardio, yeah, probably, no, probably for cardio.
0: <laughs> that's very diplomatic cool well I think chaps that is the show so uh, thank you both very much for today once again thanks to all of you out there for listening if you want to get in touch with us you're more than welcome to do so we are DDK Limited on Twitter it's DDK Limited Limited spelled out in full We are available, if you want to email us, at ddkpod at ddklimited.com. That's ddkpod at ddklimited.com. And we are available on LinkedIn as Dalton Day Candola. So thank you very much again to everybody listening out there. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you.
1: Thank you. See ya. Bye.